0: Hello friend, welcome back to the cozy confines of the podcast bunker for what may very well be the longest Tully show ever. If it's not, it's gotta be pretty darn close. If after listening to this, you decide that 80 to 90 minutes of hot Tully show action is not enough to satisfy your wild rabbit appetite for all things me. Don't forget, I'm putting out additional pods pretty much every single day of the week. Every Tuesday and Friday, there's new episodes of The Deuce with the People's Champ, Jesse May Peluso, now available not just on Patreon, anywhere you pod. Every Wednesday, of course, there's the Jason Ellis Show and then the additional Jason Ellis Show Patreon episodes. And speaking of Patreon, I'm averaging three additional Patreon-exclusive episodes myself. This week alone, I'll be taking a look back and my first time listening to the first album from boston we're gonna do a crowdsourced look at the finest regional foods of the u.s and canada and then of course there is tully time the weekly news headline roundup last time last week on tully time i shared an exclusive snippet of brand new music one of the new songs i've recorded down here in the pod bunker that and so much more waiting for you at patreon.com slash mike tully Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, oh, oh oh my goodness, this is the wrong intro. I can I can freestyle this. Joining us today. Uh, the rare tully show guest who has opted to return to the tully show and uh, publicist to the stars and the author of the hip-hop oral history this part I do need to look up going off the story of the juice crew and cold chillin records
1: smooth nailed it hello and welcome back Ben Merless thanks for having me Mike I love your intro The first time I was on this show and you were doing the intro, it sounded so perfect. I thought you were lip syncing to your own pre-recorded voice. And then I realized, no, he's saying that. I'm watching him say that right now. Yeah, well, nobody's going to make that mistake this time, Ben. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So thank you for
0: joining me. When we spoke to you last, it was obviously on the subject of hip hop, but you're a musical renaissance man. I think you know more about... I think... You know just about everything that I know about music and you clearly know lots of things that I also don't know about music because I certainly am in no position to write a book about any hip-hop scene, much less a relatively obscure one. And I also know that you routinely take umbrage with my abject dismissal of the entire second wave of of punk rock whenever that comes up across these podcasts so it may be surprising to some people that the hip-hop guy is back to talk hair metal not surprising to me in the least case in point there i was in line for the uh with my family uh like hour 10 of disneyland on a hot day waiting to go on the star wars rise of the resistance ride for the i don't know how many time when all of a sudden i just totally started ignoring my family until finally they're like what are you doing? This is family time. And I was like, don't you understand? I'm texting with somebody about firehouse.
1: (laughs) And obviously
0: that got me out of jail immediately. Cause when you talk firehouse people recognize. So you texted me and, and asked me, um, Correct me if I'm wrong. Who who was the last band that made it through? Not the band that continued to find some success post Nirvana, post grunge, post the nineties, culturally properly starting. Who was the last band that got their start with a clear hair metal uh sound before grunt you know, before the wave of grunge arrived? And we ultimately decided it, it was Firehouse, was it not?
1: Yeah, that's that's what I could find, which is strange because their first album comes out in 1990, so you'd think there'd be something from earlier in 1991. Remember Nevermind comes out in September of 91. Yeah. That made it through the door, but I we couldn't find anything. So it almost that's almost evidence alone that maybe it wasn't, you know, Nirvana acting alone that that killed this entire musical movement that it was already breathing its last breath. Uh but you know, you're actually more of an expert on hair metal than I am. I was I was thirteen and starting eighth grade when the Nirvana 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 lockalypse. I don't know. I don't know how to say it yet. Happened. You keep workshopping that.
2: How how old how
0: old <laughs> do you think I am, Ben? I was I was a I was a freshman in high school when Nevermind came out. I
1: I believe you were one year older than I am. That's- so we're yeah, at out. this point let's we might as well just say we're the same age because who's really counting 45 and 46 whatever
0: yeah uh right so hair metal and i know as somebody who did go really deep on this stuff and i i was on both sides of, of, of the fence it was it's not that it's i'm not super proud of continuing to seek out new hair metal post nirvana but like i did have the nirvana records and all that i just kind of like both of them but I know the bands who were like, cool, so now we're, you know, um, who, who was the last bands that got out of, you know, so like uh, Warrant got signed, and now the shows that they would have been doing, the big Saturday night headlining, Kick Tracy's doing that. Well, now Kick Tracy got signed, and, or Pretty Boy Floyd, and they're out on the road with LA Guns or whatever. So the bands that assumed that mantle, who could... um without really kidding themselves, realistically think they were just the next in line, that they would be on Headbangers Ball in 18 months. I like a lot of those bands, but I don't personally hear one that I think, boy, these guys, if they had just put this song out three years earlier, they would have been Warrant. I tend to agree. It was hair metal for all of its uh objective greatness nobody's disagreeing about that was a was a spent force by the time uh you could say it was more of a mercy killing on the part of nirvana and their ilk
1: yeah and you can even see the tides turning by the late 80s hair metal bands are teasing their hair less and wearing less makeup on their faces so you're you're already seeing an evolution tending towards you know dressing down Within the hair metal era. Yeah. Which I, you know, all this stuff I just put in this giant basket in my brain. But then going back and looking at Motley- what Molly Crew looked like in 1981 versus 1988 or 89, that's very different, you know?
0: Yeah. I think Molly Crew were pretty big trendsetters uh in in terms of image not that everything that they did was super original i think in most cases you can point to the stuff that they were borrowing from but they showed up with the pentagrams and the you know and 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 the flames and then a lot of bands went when a lot of bands started to ape that they went uh you know pastels and pink and home sweet home and then when a lot of bands followed that trend they went biker and you know wild side and and then the dr feel good stuff i think stylistically wasn't too big um image wise a a departure from that but we're not here to talk about the heavy metal that succeeded or that everybody knows about um as, as i have been aware of and as you are obviously aware um a number of the bands who were In some cases, household names, but in many other cases, just major label acts who had not broken through to the mainstream, as it turned out, were never to break through to the mainstream, did soldier on. Even though they, I think to a man, knew it was over, they couldn't just quit when somebody was offering them the opportunity to make a record, so they had to try to move forward and make some sort of musical compromise or peace with what they were and what their audience expected and in um, what, the you know, the audiences um, ha- had changed to, to wanting out of a, a rock band seemingly overnight. And this is so you wrote to me and said, did you just literally suggest, hey, we should do a show about the hair metal bands that went grunge? Because I literally already had that in my notes as one of the th- 6000 music shows I'll get to one of these days. But you did you did initiate this.
1: Uh, I think we just started texting each other back and forth and then you said out of the blue, "Okay, fine, I'll have you on the show and we'll do an episode about this. Yeah,
0: you were hitting pretty hard, Ben. Um, (laughs) So the fun thing for me about this is that the the records that we're going to talk about came out in the pre streaming, even pre Napster age. So I was like aware that most of these bands were still doing stuff because there was, you know, whatever label they were on would still take out some kind of promo in, in magazines. So I, I'm aware of a lot of these records, but I can honestly say I never bothered to listen to most of the things that were going, you know, bands that I I had three albums from, I never listened to the fourth one until I put the playlist together for today's show. So I think it's, it's interesting and it's not good. And, I don't these bands have been shit on so much it's really beating, beating a dead horse to just talk about the fact that these records were not good. Um <laughs> so I'm I'm going to try to look for bright sides where they present themselves but full disclosure there there aren't a ton. You you pretty much know what we're going to talk about. Were there any uh, to your ears secret successes of the hair metal bands,
1: Gone grunge or gone 90s? Um not a one that I could find. <laughs> okay. um, although right. That's fair. You know, I'm not a I like very little hair metal music. Mm-hmm. I like even less grunge music. Mm. This is not music. I the music they started playing is not something I I generally like. The music yeah. they ended up playing is not something I generally like. You know, I I could pro, I probably like three albums worth of hair metal. The two of which are the first two Motley Crue albums, and then the third one would would be like you know the first Ratt EP, and then uh, Enough's Enough. You know, it's just songs here and there. Yeah, grunge. It's like. I like Nirvana. Mm, that might be it. The Fluid from Denver was kind of obscure, but, but like I looking back like I liked when it was happening. I liked that Hair Metal was being killed because it just seemed like this thing that was just never going away. Yeah. Like I I was born in 1978. I can't really remember much that happened before 1983 when it pretty much took over. Yeah. And um uh but still it's nirvana that killed it nirvana is like pretty much the one grunge band i like looking back on the whole thing it's like oh there was actually slightly more hair metal i liked than grunge music which is mostly a bummer um so what were you
0: listening to say in in like in in late 90 when the when when firehouse came out um and and what were you listening to other than nirvana in
1: in 92 when hair metal effectively died um punk rock from mostly the late 70s and early 80s gotcha. with a tiny sprinkling of more contemporary for its time punk music. Yeah, I was I spent most of the 80s I spent most of the 90s wishing it were the 80s mm-hmm. and then working at a grocery store with the 80s channel playing on a loop made me realize, "Oh, we have selective memories." There was a lot of bad music that happened in the 80s. We just choose to remember the stuff we like. Bite, um, bite
0: your tongue. I'm a guy, I'm a guy <laughs> who hosts a podcast about every single release from the 80s. But I, you know. It, it's it's No, it's kind of embarrassing that I, I, I genuinely like almost everything that I play on that show. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about – well, we'll talk about Warrant first of all. I feel like in a – for whatever reason to me, they are – even though this happened, the same story played out for so many bands – they are the poster child for grunge turning on them. Janie Lane, when he was still with us, told the story many times about going to the, the record label office and seeing the cover of cherry pie behind the receptionist's desk. And then going back the next time and seeing Alice in Chains there and going, Oh, okay. I get it. You know, it was, it was a long sad public demise for, for warrant. Um, uh, and but they did continue to make. Uh, they made three albums after their heyday, and we're going to sample all three of them. So strap yourself in to refresh everybody's memory with the the heyday of Warrant. They are Warrant of uh, Cherry Pie fame. <laughs> classic you know you can just play it on an acoustic guitar and it'll work you know it's just uh it's it's just it's rock and roll at its purest this, the title track from cherry pie they actually did get another album out before i think it was completely obvious like it's it would be wrong to say that when nirvana came out like everybody knew within a week you know that that these bands were done Warren did get an album out in 92 which did still sound recognizably like Warrant and it did manage to go gold so it moved 500,000 copies which is which is not nothing and the um the the representative single from that uh the 92 album Dog Eat Dog is The Bitter Pill right here I mean, to me, that's just classic Warrant Hits is all that is clearly written before anybody had heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, this sounds like a standard power ballad with some 80s sounding synths. I think even for hair metal, it might sound a little dated like this sounds very 1987 to me. Um, they,
0: strong production was never their strongest suit. If you go back and listen to even albums that came out at the same time as like Dirty Rotten, Filthy, Stinking Rich, their debut, it's it's a remarkably flimsy sound that they had for a hard rockin' band.
1: Yeah, I sent you an article from May 1995. I think it's, yeah, musician magazine, Alan DiPirno wrote it. It's called Who Killed the Hairbands? And Janie Lane is quoted in it a lot. And he talks about this record specifically. Mm-hmm. So this is May 95. This is like, you know, there you there's the the dust has barely settled. And he he says, I don't have any animosity towards Columbia, Columbia being their record label. I don't, I really don't know what would have happened if we had gotten more money for support on Dog Eat Dog. I'm not sure if that would have helped sales or not. I don't know. If that would have been throwing good money after bad on their part, because I don't think people wanted to hear that kind of music at that time. You can't force feed them. So he's, I mean, that's almost like pro Columbia records. Like, come on, man, no one wants to hear this music. Why are we going to promote you heavily? So I I thought that was, um, he's very self-aware at this point. And it's not that that long after, you know, this isn't from like 2005. This is 1995. This is in the middle of the grunge thing. He's saying this.
0: Yeah, it's crazy because he sort of seemed like the most uh, self-aware guy and the least self-aware guy at the same time. You know, he, he he he. he passed away. And I think uh, clearly drugs and alcohol played a real role in that. And, you know, there were some awkward moments on stage of him performing songs and sort of acknowledging nobody wants to hear this anymore. But at the same time, you know, I remember reading the, Contemporary interviews of people going Man that riff is just noise Why would anybody want to hear that Just not even getting the appeal And there he is saying Well I think the grunge records are pretty good man You know maybe we just had our run And that was the end of it So it's sort of strange He doesn't seem like the guy Who was going to get caught in in. Oh I hate to say In the undertow And yet uh-huh. that I swear to god that was an accident And yet that was the name of um the Their first single From there was a label called CMC which I don't remember what that stands for, but this is one of a couple labels that started gobbling up. like a, a, It would have been a dream major label roster four years earlier, and now it was just picking bands up off the scrap heap and thinking if we give them a modest amount of money to make another record, we can like package them on tour, and maybe, just maybe, somebody will come see a quadruple bill of warrant and dangerous toys and you know you fill in fill in the blank and i doubt whoever ran cmc got rich on that concept but it did the legacy ultimately of cmc is the music and um and, and we've got some here uh this is the song uh the warrant single from 1995 entitled undertow let me a sec here Boom.
2: Stop
0: I swear, I, I think I played with this band like seven different like under seven different names and guises that sounds like half of the bands that I That I performed with in shitty clubs in New Jersey in the mid 90s. It literally sounds like Uncle Tom's Cabin by Warrant if it was written by Alice in Chains, which I think was exactly the idea.
1: Yeah, I totally get the Alice in Chains thing, too. I think there's a song we're going to listen to a little later that mm-hmm. screams Uncle Tom's Cabin to me. Although I don't remember what it is, but when we get to it, I'll yeah. say, that's the Uncle Tom's Cabin song. I it, don't think it was warrant, though. Alice um, in Chains was the one, you, and you'll you'll see this,
0: there's certain leitmotifs that run through this. Alice in Chains was the band that these bands were able to go, okay, if I just took a riff that I that I write that I like and make one of them wrong... If I may take one note in there and 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 purposely play something that sounds off to my ear, we can sound like Allison. Like nobody was listening to Nirvana and going, "Ah, I could do that." But Allison Chains, I feel like, was the the one the one hope that these bands had for moving their their sound forward. That's one light motif. Another one that I saw throughout my research is the the nearly inevitable statement from the band fill-in-the-blank album that came out post-grunge, that utterly flopped. Uh, many of our biggest fans consider it our best album. That is like half of... <laughs> many critics consider Dog Eat Dog the best Warrant album, at
1: least according to Wikipedia, Ben. So put that in your pipe. Um, well, it makes sense that that they are emanating Alice in Ch- or emulating Alice in Chains because Alice in Chains started some of the members as a hair metal band in right. the 80s, Alice in Chains... And then they just, yeah, went, you know, five or 10% to the left after being inspired by seeing Soundgarden play and become Alice in Chains and put out their first album. And I always think if Alice in Chains made an album, th- they may have screwed their career because they would have been associated with these now right. dinosaur hair metal bands. Yeah, no, you have, it you, have, like- you
0: have a mixed up. It was Alice in Chains and then became Alice in
1: Chains. Oh, okay. I thought it was Alice, I-N, and then it became Alice-N. Anyway. No, 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 no. The, band, the famous band is Alice in Chains. Yeah,
0: those definitely bands who were very um, lucky that nobody was aware of what they were doing. And then you had Pantera, who unfortunately everybody was aware of what they were doing. Lucky for them, the music was just so undeniable. People were willing to overlook, was it Ride My Love Rocket that was the
1: single? You got me
0: Yeah, Pantera had a had an illustrious Like two album hair metal run Before they met Phil uh, No, no, right. they made a hair metal album with Phil Anyway, uh, Warrant This is the last album that they made With Janie Lane From 96 off the album Belly to Belly Volume 1 Stay tuned They're, they're Chinese Democracy Belly to Belly Volume 2 Should be coming any day now Warrant and Angry Young Man I swear, just that riff, it's crazy. It didn't strike me until just now. Every rehearsal room that I was in in New Jersey in 94, 95, 96, coming through some, you know, if there's there's five rooms, coming out of one closed door would always be... Everybody, everybody tried that riff. I'm not sure it worked for, for anybody. And you heard a voice,
1: and then you heard a voice go, "Yeah, absolutely, right after that, the,
0: positively, yeah." No, no, no. We, we used to like co-headline with that band for sure. I can't remember their name, but yes. Um, yeah. The, go ahead.
1: The funny thing about this album, "Belly to Belly, Volume One," on CMC International Records, is that the artist is actually Warrant '96, and of course, this came out in 1996. That's what it says on the record. Which is pretty short-sighted because if you name your band warrant 19, if you name your band warrant '96, what happens in 1997? Seems a little like uh, you're you're dating yourself.
0: Now was and that, then of course was that, was that, was that a, an instance? Because another. Hallmark of this era of of all of these bands is there's you know internal tensions have boiled over and people have left and people are fighting over the name was it simply a matter that somebody was no longer in the band who may have technically had a legal right to the name because we're going to get there with Vixen the Vixen album we're going to talk about is not an official Vixen release because of
1: that oh yeah I didn't realize that Um <laughs> bootleg I Vixen. don't know in the case of warrant I don't know yeah um but man, more grunge from America's favorite grunge band, Warrant. Yeah. And there there was no belly to belly volume two, if that's what you're wondering as well.
0: No. I'm, 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 keep the faith. Keep the faith. Um, so Def Leppard, let's see, where we where we last found them uh finding success was already with far from their strongest work. It's very not good. <laughs> Off the album, Adrenalize, uh, that was the uh, the classic single, Let's Get Rocked. And now Def Leppard were, they were obviously a cut above the other acts. Um, no, Def Leppard wasn't losing their record deal just because Nirvana had a hit. I think they were already perceived as being a legacy artist who was going to get some actual money to make a record to see if they could um, maintain their audience. They did get that money. They did spend that money. They did make that record. Did they maintain their audience? Well, they eventually came back when Def Leppard went back to sounding like Def Leppard. So they released the album Slang. This is their first album since maybe their debut that does not involve the producer Mutt Lang, who, like it or not, is, is critical to the band's sound as any member of Def Leppard. Um, they, it was the, it was the first album they had that didn't have the classic Def Leppard logo on the cover. All these bands are, are, are running scared. You know, this is where Velvet Revolver is putting out an album and Slash isn't doing guitar solos. Um, there's no, uh, there, there's, there's little to no backup vocals, even though Def Leppard, when you think about it, one of the signature, um, uh, parts of their sound is the Def Leppard backup sound. They, this is the stripped down sound of, uh, of Def Leppard and and i enjoyed uh their their grunge era work so much i actually picked two samples for us to enjoy together including this one right here
1: Ben, thoughts um not good yeah uh also it's the song slang uh, it sounds more like dance pop than grunge yeah uh so worth worth pointing out that it's 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 not
0: it's, it's not so simple to say that they all went grunge we'll hear from a band here or there who uh picked up on some other 90s trend that they yeah. thought they could hitch their hitch their
1: wagon to hitch their but, wagon
0: to boy how i wish def leppard had made a grunge album but i don't think it was to be
1: well def leppard is a unique case because they weren't really from the hair metal uh scene or era they are a new wave of british heavy metal band yeah who put out the f- possibly the first new wave of british heavy metal record ever uh which was a self-released single in 1978 or 9 mm-hmm. and then um they to, to my ears they've since they started making albums, they've always been a little overproduced for my taste. Mm-hmm. Even the even the album before Mutt Lang joins the fold, but those early songs are incredible. I listen to Def Leppard on a regular basis while washing the dishes. I love the very very early like nineteen eighty Def Leppard material, especially like the live and the BBC sessions. So you don't get that slick production, but then you know they all their their new wave of British heavy metal peers turn on them because they they feel like they're pandering to the United States to try to make it big in America because that's every British band's dream is to make it big in America. And it works and they become huge here. And now, so it's like that hair metal thing, they they come into that whole fold in like 83 with Pyromania. They get to ride that wave that's already happening here. And then, of course, that wave crashes in 91. So it, it makes complete sense that this band is going to pivot musically in order to survive, no matter what it takes. Like, I I can't imagine them a band like this dying on like the uh, you know eighties pop metal hill. No, it, it would seem. You know. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But in in looking into
2: this,
0: I find it very. Um the hair the hair the bands who succeeded in the hair metal scene who turned up their nose at hair metal I've always found a little befuddling tesla is very much in in this camp as well I can I have ears I can hear how tesla and def leppard are different from the other hair metal bands But it ain't different enough for you to, that's, you guys shitting on that is kinda shitting where you eat. And I understand the difference between Tesla and Def Leppard. There's many differences, one of which you've made very clear. Def Leppard came way before the rest of these bands and was an inspiration for many of these bands, but for Def Leppard to literally be saying when they're making this album slang, oh, we were so happy that we could finally evolve as a band and not sound like all those pathetic hair metal bands anymore, it was like... You guys wrote Pour Some Fucking Sugar on Me. Like, don't get all high and mighty, Def
1: Leppard. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if that hair metal thing hadn't been happening, I, I don't see Def Leppard having the success that they did have in the eighties. So yeah. yeah. Right. Don't don't shit on what made you Big, even though you know you weren't really associated with it in the at the very beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they did was like an elevated form of it. I mean, they it, honestly it was a, frankly a popier uh, a form, you know, raising it to um, uh, not just arena proportions, but showing the other hair metal bands just how like stadium ready hair metal could be by essentially using the the we will rock you drum beat as often as you could anyway let's check out the i don't even remember why i wanted to play two songs from this but the title track from slang i think was the single so let's see what that's all about That sounds like like my kid watches my kids watch uh, like second and third tier uh, children's movies on Netflix. Like I don't know if you know that there's like a Woody Woodpecker movie. Like that's the song that plays in the soundtrack of the Woody Woodpecker movie that was made in like 2003. The start of that, I was gonna say that sounds like the worst it ever got for Brian Adams but I actually think it's worse than the worst it ever got for Brian Adams.
1: Here's what it reminds me of before the pandemic, I used to go to the gym twice a week and there was this, uh, they'd always be blasting, piping music through the speakers of the gym. And it would always be like these dance remixes of classic rock songs. It would be like, Fleetwood Mac dreams, but with like a beat underneath the song. And it's just like, wow, there's people who want to hear this. This just like, am I from another planet that I can't relate to anyone's desire to ever hear music like this? And this sounds like if someone took a Def Leppard song from the 80s. And Dance Pop B to fight it in order to play at 24 Hour Fitness. Except this is actually how the song goes. Yeah, and this right. is how the original version of the song. This is not a remix.
0: No, you're it's right. It's amazing. Yeah, it sounds like TLC remixed a Def Leppard song. Yeah. Uh, Motley Crue obviously were you know the bigger they come the harder they fall and they'd always had um, a a bit of a sense of smug superiority about them so even as a really big fan Motley Crue are the reason I picked up a guitar it was still sort of satisfying to watch their uh, their castle of sand crumble beneath their feet now there's a lot of people I'm guessing based on the feelings you expressed for this genre as as a whole that you're not one of them there are a lot of of people who will Corey taylor of slipknot for example who will tell you that the motley Crue album with the other singer john karabi was a secret success that it actually was a good album even if it wasn't right for the time and then and that it holds up to this day to me if it is you had to be there I, I i took Corey taylor's advice on twitter and i and i i'm sorry x and i uh and i checked it out and and it, it's it's not as it's not as bad as the Def Leppard um, songs, that's for damn sure. Um, before we, just to rem- just so everybody uh, gets the, the, the taste back in their ears, so to speak, this is Motley Crue pre-Nirvana. <laughs> It's some gritty, hard-hitting stuff right there. SOS, same old situation. And then uh, following, you know, acrimony and lawsuits and drug addiction and Nikki Six supposedly, if you believe the story, being dead for a couple of minutes, they're back and they've dropped the makeup and they can hang with these uh, grunge upstarts. Um, and here is the song that uh, that perhaps, arguably... Proves it uh, here. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's a good song, Ben. You've you know what we're going to be talking about. Well, you know, what we already have talked about and what we will talk about. Is there a better song on this show's playlist than Molly Crew featuring John Karabi and uh Hooligan's Holiday? <laughs>
2: Up a storm
0: lines of hell on a face. Okay, this is a long song. We're not going to get to that. Everybody wants a piece of the action. What do you think?
1: I agree. Mm-hmm. This is the least worst song on the playlist. Yeah. It's surprisingly not very cringy. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that Corey Taylor expressed that this was wrong for its time, I don't know if I agree with that because what other year would this have worked? This is very 1994. Yeah. The problem is it's under the name Motley Crue. And yeah. with that comes this immense baggage. You know, they're carrying all of hair metal's baggage on their shoulders. John Karabi, people love saying, well, he's technically a better a better singer than Vince Neal, and that's what people would say about uh Ronnie James Dio when he replaced Ozzy Osbourne in Black Sabbath. Well, he's a better singer. It's like, yes, technically they're better singers, but you have this mental, you have image of Black Sabbath is fucking Ozzy singing Paranoid, Motley Crue is Vince Neal singing Shout at the Devil. We'll get to that soon. And we, and we will get but, to that, yeah. But it's like... And if they had changed their name, would this song have or would this record have been more of a success? Eh, I I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Um, it John Karabi from Philadelphia. He was in a band called Angora, and then he was also in a band called The Scream. Neither neither of which I'm really familiar with. Did you ever dive into those ones, Mike? No, I, I I I didn't miss too many, but I I can honestly say I've
0: never even heard of Angora. But i I know he was I know he was the guy from The Scream. I never listened to. There was a really bad band called Scream Sister Scream, but I don't think he was in that one. I believe he was in The Scream, not to be confused with Primal Scream, also not my favorite band.
1: Yeah, lots of screaming happening around this time. Now, that in song music. was was actually,
0: I think Hooligans Holiday was a successful song. I, I think that is like a feather in their cap. I think that may have been added to MTV's regular rotation for a spell and not just strictly because of payola like I think payola is what got the kids to taste you know to sample it but I think people genuinely thought that that was okay you know I mean Warren was still doing Unskinny skinny bop in like 93 or something you know I mean so it wasn't that out of the out of the question and I feel bad for Karabi that it's a convenient storytelling device like if you watch the um the movie version of the dirt which many people saw because it was a Netflix movie they literally brush over the era in 30 seconds of them going out on stage going, Oh my God, this sucks. There's nobody here. And Karabi walking out like, I've never seen this many people in my entire life. Like he was this slack jawed yokel who was in over his head. He's a good singer. It was the best possible version of Motley Crue. I think that could have existed in 94. And it's definitely, the last song they made that anybody has ever claimed is any good at all. Like, I I just think that there's, there's the, um, uh, we can do the nerve. Oh, Alice in Chains. I can do that. And, And you listen to the songs like, no, no, you actually can't. Tommy Lee, you could hear just in the sample that we that we sampled was like, oh, you guys want like more like let it loose, like feel it in your sternum drums? Cool, I got that. Let's do it. And he does. He actually is a fucking really cool drummer whose thing was totally adaptable. He is the biggest cheese ball of all time and a very problematic individual, but he is an all time
1: great drummer, not a great hair metal drummer. Yeah, I accept that. All I right. mean, my go-to hair metal record is "Too Fast for Love." Me too. And you got that cowbell at the at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It's like they want you. to... They're pointing their fingers and saying, "Check out this drummer." So yeah, um, yeah, he's the star. Of that.
0: He's the star of that record for sure.
1: Yeah, and I I can't say I'm 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 the biggest fan of anything much past "Shout at the Devil." No, um, but um, this this uh, this doesn't do anything for me again. N- not embarrassing which is surprising because we are talking about a Motley Crew here.
0: Yeah. Well, if you if if embarrassment is what you want, um Vince Neil would be back in the fold for the next record, 97's Generation Swine, um which featured a uh, a new meddled up version of one of their signature hits, Shout at the Devil. Now, this was not one of the singles, and I didn't want to necessarily pick on them by cherry picking like the least appropriate song, hey, let's just do a a new version of an old song and buried at the bottom of a record. I believe the record label paid some pretty good money for Motley Crue to be able to appear on, I want to say it was the American Music Awards, and perform. Shout the Devil, 97. So they felt very strongly, and the people who were giving them money felt very strongly that if they had a chance of getting back in the game, it was by um, taking uh, their their signature 1983 sound and adding uh, a a nonsensically non-musical atonal guitar angle to it. And what they got was this right here. yeah i don't know I, I remember at the time feeling it was awkward because i was 20 and you know i was moving on with my life <laughs> and uh you know what i mean it's like seeing like an ex who's dated three people who look exactly like you or something and you're like oh no this is come on come on you know things didn't work out between us but i i, I don't want to see you like this
1: yeah it's like what's the most unoriginal thing that the reformed original lineup of Motley Crue could do re-record their breakthrough hit and yep. it totally sounds like they robbed zombie of it like they changed a couple chords to make yep. it like ah, ah, and it's like this is so not good i'd love to know um take someone this would be really difficult to 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 test or prove take someone with musical tastes uh similar to yours who has never heard the original shadow of the devil and see if they like this in other words if you had never heard the original shadow of the devil and you're not overlaying this version in your mind on top of the original yeah would this be a good song to anyone would anyone just hear this song on its own and think oh that's a good song i don't think so no i don't think so and it's a shame that you know
0: you couldn't undo the baggage of uh of of what the original song was um, and present it to a new audience. It just—it was shout of the devil. It was what it was. But I would go so far as to say that the original progression is—it's an okay Black Sabbath progression on its own. Just take the guitar. It—it—that it, was actually—that was actually the part of the song that was arguably—it was like a little bit timeless and you took that part out and kept the the cheesy shock theatrics of tipper gore baiting you know satanism from 1983 um I think we we gotta speed this up a little bit or this is gonna be like a three-hour pod. And I do I do intend to talk about sixty-five fucking bands with you today, uh, Ben. Thanks to everybody for hearing hearing us out on this journey. Queensryche did not, I guess, make an album for a minute. You know, actually they were their when did when did Silent Lucidity come out? I know they're not properly a hair metal band, but the only people who listen to them were hair metal fans and Pink Floyd fans, I guess. Um, can can you look that up? When did Silent Hill City? Yeah. No, I was in. No, 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 no. That's not the nineties. I was still in. I was still in elementary school when that came out. Um, I, I think compared to their hair metal peers, I think they turned up their nose at their hair metal peers, and I think they were kind of justified in doing so. There was a little bit more class and a little bit more um, musicality to what they were doing, as evidenced by their signature huge. Hit smash single of life.
2: So here it is another chance. Wide awake you face the day, your dream is over. Or has it just begun?
0: Look, I don't I don't like Queensrake. I don't like that guy. I don't like that song. It's a pretty great guitar line.
1: Yeah, Silent Lucidity is on the Empire album released September fourth, nineteen ninety. So it has a slightly more than a year on on Nirvana Nevermind. So we're we're firmly within that last twelve month period of
0: Oh, that's grit. interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, they were in a way, I think I you could make the case that they were the last band therefore to break through. If that was after Firehouse obviously Queensrike had been a thing and Queensrike had a following and um you know a lot of something that was basically unknown in Hair Metal uh critical praise for the preceding album Operation Mindcrime but that hadn't done anything in a, in a, in a, in the pop sphere and now all of a sudden Queensrike come along and it wasn't even just uh at least on MTV, it wasn't just Silent Lucidity. I mean, they were um, the Empire, uh, the title track from that album. Jet City Woman was like a very, very, very big thing. They might have, they might have actually been, I mean, they, they were at least sort of at the same time as Firehouse, right?
1: Yeah, except that I was looking for like hair metal bands that put out debut albums that did it. really well. I get it. So yeah. they wouldn't qualify. But yeah, Jet City Woman, the single comes out May 91. We're, we're, we're playing with fire here. We're getting close. To well, getting here's burned. the
0: but here's the thing. Um, it's it, easy to forget, especially or maybe many people didn't know to begin with. Queensryche, they they're not a New York band. They're not a Sunset Strip band. Queensryche is a Seattle band, and I think all of the Seattle bands. It always seemed to me they gave a pass to like anybody from Seattle because they're like you are the reason why any scout came here in the first place nobody came to seattle so there's our heart from seattle because i know yeah heart kind of got adopted by the 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 hair metal bands there's somebody else who i can't um hmm? uh jimmy hendrix no i'm just kidding yes he is from seattle but... right 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 and then um uh saigon kick they were i think okay. i think they were a seattle band and they were very very firmly on the line of of hair metal and, and and grunge, they definitely saw what was what was coming. So Queensryche, at least in some quarters of the hair metal world, were um, were not only tolerated and accepted. I'm sorry, in the grunge world, were not only tolerated and accepted, but embraced. When they finally make another album in 1997, it is at least partially recorded in the home studio of Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam so they're they're down with the grunge movement uh it did not necessarily help the music here is a track from that 97 effort I never thought I would say this about anything, but I would have liked to have heard uh the Stone Temple Pilots take a crack at that one.
1: You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. This sounds like Stone Temple Pilots. Right. But this band is from seattle and stone temple pilots aren't so take that who's the poser now oh stone temple pilots make no mistake are the poser i forget the backstory
0: there but they they were another band right that had like tried this and tried that and i thought they were even like a joke band or something isn't that what because they one of their albums was called songs from the vatican gift shop and i remember the story was supposedly that the band name had been vatican gift shop in an earlier incarnation okay
1: Yeah, it's it's murky. Yeah, but they were always criticized for having parts having parts of their songs where you could just point. And say, they got that from this. They yeah. got that from this. Like that band Jet was another one where it's like, sure. oh, they just stole this part from this, you know, famous song we've all grew up listening to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I won't belabor Poison because I'm not sure how remarkable it really is. Poison never really made a proper uh, grunge album or an electronica album or, or anything like that. What they did do was kick out CC Deville, who was maybe the most '80s guy in all of hair metal. Witness the name CC Deville, and uh, even though I'm a, I mean CC is the heart and soul of that band for uh, for better and for worse. Um, and they brought in a guy who I actually, as a guitar player, was a huge, huge fan of in his earlier Shredder phase. I love the the Richie Cotsen Shredder album. Like, it's not good my Richie Kotzen doesn't like the Richie Kotzen Shredder album produced by Marty Friedman later of Megadeth but then he segued into being kind of like like a a more soulful Sting knockoff it was a very uh it was, it was a very odd transition and he became clearly the the creative leader of Poison for the one album that he made with them before famously getting kicked out for allegedly although i don't think it's alleged having sexual relations with drummer Ricky Rocket's fiancé. When you're the higher gun, you probably don't want to sleep with the established band members' fiancées. You probably don't want to do that regardless. But yeah, yeah I yeah. point taken. You probably don't want to sleep with anyone who is open to sleeping with Ricky Rocket. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. So let's see. This is uh, Fire and Ice Until You Suffer Some was the catchy name of the catchy single they made on the album Native Tongue. I think
2: I lost in the fire. It's not enough, girl.
0: It's a shame New Country didn't wasn't the potent force that it has become because that would have provided a really uh easy off ramp
1: for poison. Well, there's nothing like some down home blues with everyone's favorite blues man, Brett Michaels. Yeah, from th- And that th- peaceful th- Hammond B three organ. He's from the southern part of Pittsburgh, you see. <laughs> Aren't they from like Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, wherever that it, is? They're,
0: they're definitely from somewhere in Pennsylvania, and then they moved out to uh, to the. Yeah, he's always been a weird. I would love. I could do a whole show on just like southern Southern rockers who are <laughs> have no southern roots whatsoever yet have the accent and everything. You know, that to me sounds like I almost give them credit beyond the fact that it's not good that sounds like a band that's actually sticking to their guns like if if grunge had not come along and it, like a world that we now live in where like new metal bands came out 20 years ago just keep putting out the same record and and no n- no nirvana has come along to make to wipe them off the face of the earth if poison had just been yeah you guys are the you guys are kings and any album you put out is gonna go platinum and 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 you guys can make stylistic departures like I can actually see poison getting to that album sooner or later. It was just like, we can't be a grunge band. So we're just going to do the next logical step for, you know, if I'm going down, I'm going down making shitty poison songs.
1: Yeah, I I totally see that. I mean, it's like even like something to believe in from flesh and blood. You have Brett Michaels with the acoustic guitar. It's like, I, this this album probably would have happened regardless of what the musical climate was in 1992. Yeah, but it's so maudlin. It's so just tiresome. Yep. And I I like they could have called it to me and fallen they, angel.
0: They could have called it nothing but a bad time.
1: Yeah, it, it is nothing but a bad time. Um, if you. Th- who are your listeners out there who are repl- replacements fans, this may sound insane to you, but listen to "Talk Dirty to Me" and imagine Paul Westerberg singing it. That could have been a replacement song, and I'm sure, like you know, yeah, Paul oh, Westerberg isn't even dead, and he's spinning in his grave if he heard me say that.
0: No, I. Yeah, no, I I, I get that. And that's not entirely insane. He probably would have to change a couple of the more inane lyrics. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, the the early stuff was all those bands that weren't any good. The fun fun stuff was the early stuff when they really weren't any good. And they were basically punk. You know, they had the chops of a punk rock band, but they were trying to make Kiss records. That's, you know, Faster Pussycat, all of them. That's the really fun stuff. Skid Row, say what you will about, you know, I always think of Skid Row and, and Warrant, at the same time, they they got big at the same time. I feel like they were the last two big bands that came out and got multi album runs. But whereas, Warrant absolutely personified the the poppiest of uh, of pop metal. Skid Row obviously could 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 thrive in that lane. They had you know the guys who made I Remember You. But whereas Warrant doubled down on the second album and made Cherry Pie and I Saw Red. Um, Skid Row, to their credit. Started going, going away from hair metal before it was obvious that that was what you had to do, and they had the album Slave to the Grind, and and um, Monkey Business was on that, and that was successful. They were on Saturday Night Live doing those, doing those songs, and 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 performing them really, really well. And then there's the famous tour where they take Pantera out on tour, and Pantera fans scream at them, and and Pantera blows them off the stage every single night, and and that's the end of Skid Row as a. Uh, as a, a financially viable business entity, but they did make another record with Sebastian Bach. I never got around to listening to this. I gather it's just sort of more of the same of the the, the basic slave to the grind sounding stuff, but here is the single from Subhuman Race, Skid Row, and Into Another. Sebastian's going to Sebastian, you know what I mean? Zebra doesn't change its stripes.
1: Yeah, well, it's even less interesting than if they continued down that Slave to the Grind road because it's just them doing Alice in Chains like everybody else, yep. you know? Yeah, yeah. And where was the first Skid Row district? What city? Uh, It's not LA? Nope. It's either Seattle or Vancouver. I always thought it was Seattle and I double checked and they said it's either Seattle. It was Skid Row. Skid Road is what they could call it, because they would in the Pacific Northwest drag logs down, you know, this kind of well worn path. And um that's how the, you know, homeless districts and cities got their names. Um, but yeah, the Pacific Northwest. So, hey, a band called Skid Row, trying to sound like they're from Seattle—that actually makes sense, strangely enough. But they are from your neck of the woods, am I right? Somewhere in northern New Jersey. Uh, they're
0: from central New Jersey. They're from uh, oh. John Bo- John Bon Jovi country. Um, Dave the Snake Sabo from Skid Row did this is one of my highest uh, one of the highest achievements of my musical career. We had a guy in our management team who had had something to do with Skid Row and he knew that we were a big fans. So he brought Dave the Snake Sabo out to one of our shows and and after the show Dave uh gave us the token. That's really good stuff guys. I really like that. So Dave Dave <laughs> Dave Sabo came to see my band one time. Yeah, which is So it me. was like
1: you felt like you were being knighted by the queen, right? Well, it was
0: weird cuz it was already over and and you know, as kids, like the world moves fast and you're right on top of it and it was like awkward because it's like yeah you're dave sabo you anybody who ever did it it doesn't matter if you're a has-been you did it and i still i'll i mean i don't didn't listen to your record yesterday or the day before but i'll still listen to that i'm not too cool to listen to skid row but you're also there's a reason why you weren't too busy to come see my band play at the lion's den in new york you know what i'm saying right yeah so one of the biggest um uh metal bands hair metal bands was also one of the biggest rock bands of all time and they made um their uh their foray into into the grunge adjacent um world with an album that uh, would wait years until it had its official release i'm speaking of kiss they made a You know, some people say it's actually their favorite KISS album. That's what KISS guitar player Bruce Kulik, or Kulik, I've never been really clear on that, says about uh, Carnival of Souls. He was, I think they recorded the album and then didn't put it out, and then he was fired from the band, and then they put the makeup back on and started just becoming a straight-up nostalgia act, touring with the original guys or passable stand-ins on the nights the original guys weren't able to stand on stage wearing the makeup um this is uh this is some pretty some pretty spicy stuff eventually it got so heavily bootlegged that Gene and and Paul were just like well we may as well sell an official version of this cuz people are, are listening to it anyway we are just leaving money on the table and that ain't the kiss way i got two songs from Carnival of Souls from Kiss i think this is 1997
2: when I close my eyes and no one else can
0: As far as Kiss songs go, it's a it's a halfway decent Collective Soul song. Ah, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, it's Kiss. Did you think they were gonna like um, do something up upstanding and stick to their guns and be true to their roots? You know, this is a this is a band you can buy a Kiss coffin to be buried in. Like, of course they're gonna make they're gonna try to make a grunge album and you know try to try to keep the train moving and. Keep the cash flowing. Um, I think the record only was delayed a year. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think it was recorded late 95, early 96, came out sometime in 97. And they have never played a single song from this album live. Not even this one. And they did not promote
2: it either. going down. Comes
0: the can you imagine how it would feel because like i it just doesn't every cool jaded egotistical rock star was a kid once and was inspired to pick up a guitar and it like doesn't even matter if you were never that big of a kiss fan even though it seems like everybody who came out with a, you know, a a distorted guitar album in a 20 year span had been a huge kiss fan as a kid. I never really totally got it. I guess it was a little too late for it, but can you imagine how it would feel to be Jerry Cantrell or, or Kurt Cobain or stone Gossard or whatever. And to hear, Oh my God, kiss is trying and failing to be me.
1: Yeah. That must be a trip. Yeah. I mean, you could say, I would imagine that you know Mick Mars in nineteen eighty seven thought, "Wow, Kiss is trying and sort of succeeding at trying to be me because yeah. you know they had the they had the the makeup makeup off, but they probably had a little bit of hair metal makeup on." Oh, for sure. Yeah. In the in the eighties, when they were unmasked, even though "Unmasked" is an album where they still had the makeup on, that's very confusing. Yeah. But like, I my first my introduction to Kiss was in the eighties watching mtv and thinking there's another hair metal band but we didn't call it hair metal at that point i i just i think i probably just thought of it as heavy metal yeah um and then realizing oh this is a band that you know wore makeup and they had this whole history in the 70s and 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 this is sort of the this is it's i wouldn't even say it's the downslide this shit is the downslide um and it's amazing that like People had Kiss Nostalgia in 96, but I guess it's because Nostalgia works on 20-year cycles and they their heyday was 76. So that actually does make sense.
0: It's pretty crazy how easily and quickly they were able to pivot from trying to chase the, uh, the times. And, you know, they had a successful-ish power ballad co-written with Michael Bolton, a song called Forever, which is like, you know, it was just as good as a bunch of other shitty disposable hair metal songs. And then they did what the garbage we just listened to. And then boom, like it, 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 to me, the time did not seem ripe for a bunch of old and in the case of Gene Simmons, kind of fat men to perform Detroit rock city. But I was, I was wrong. People couldn't get enough. And, and every credible band was lining up to open for the, the remake up kiss so it wasn't just a nostalgia thing it actually had some some real cachet to it as well
1: yeah and 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 the the appeal of kiss goes Mm -hmm. beyond you know just this you know hair metal and grunge musicians of the 80s and 90s like there's uh i've heard so many interviews with punk rock people who, who made their significant mark in the 80s and when asked what's the first concert you went to Almost without exception, the answer is always Sheep Trick opening for Kiss in 1977. That (laughs) was the first concert I went to. I know. Like, everyone went to that same tour, and then some of them became hardcore punk rockers like, you know, two years later or whatever. So yeah, they're, they're very influential beyond just bands that kind of sound like Kiss. No, for
0: sure. Yeah. The cheap trick thing is even a little bit more surprising because you could listen to these bands and, you know, pretty easily connect the dots musically, at least to Kiss, you know, cheap trick was always a little bit more, uh, self-aware and, 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 and a little bit more intelligent, but yeah, I remember, uh, like smashing pumpkins name dropping, you know kiss and as you say cheap trick and and it it does seem like at the end of the day those were weirdly like outside of you know led zeppelin the two most influential bands of the 1970s at least on the american uh, rock scene uh, let's kind of let's kind of speed through the rest of these dokken made an album in 1997 and dokken i think had already i was never one to do much rockin' with Dokken. I think they had largely petered out as a creative force by... I, I, I'm led to believe that they... Don Dawkin's contribution, for better or for worse, was that hair, heavy metal had never really aspired to be quite so melodic and, like, have pop hooks until Don Dokken made that, the Dawkins sound. And it was very cheesy even at the time, but I don't think, you know, if you want to connect the dots from bands like Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister to warrant. I don't think it's very easy to get there without Dokken, who was essentially writing pop songs with big, heavy guitars. So he, he epitomized um, pop metal, and yet, for some strange reason, continued making music into 1997, which is when he um, rejoined forces with uh, On Again, Off Again, Guitar Man, George Lynch and made a song called Shadows of Life. There it is. If you just wait long enough, you go, well, it's just kind of just docking.
2: Nah.
0: it's coming.
1: Alice in Chains rock. Yep. They wrote the roadmap for this kind of shit. Let's see. And then two,
0: uh, four years later, rather, um, Lynch Mob, George Lynch's band, who'd had a, a, a smattering of success in the hair metal world, um, released an album called Hypo Orgasmic. And uh, if you thought that the way sex was portrayed in the hair metal era uh, uh, era was unflattering and uncomfortable, wait until you hear um, the unvarnished sexuality of George Lynch in uh, the late 90s. seems like a song that could have been pretty successful in prisons
1: yeah um like the whole point of this band is their namesake george lynch is this total shredder so you have this standard boring grunge song Mm -hmm. and then in the middle of it a hyper fast sweet pick shreddy solo and it's just like these don't these things don't really match no but and and the guy who fixes my guitars greg leon was a member of Dawkins in 1981, I think. Oh, pr- he a, has stories. A pre-fame, yeah. No, nobody, nobody has good things to say
0: about about Don Dawkins. the The official record is not particularly flattering, and I gather the off-the-record stuff is is a bit worse. I, I spent an hour alone in a studio with Don Dawkin one time, and definitely did not leave as a bigger fan. Huh. Let's talk about uh, Winger. So, Kip Winger had, you know, in, in many ways also a poster child for the rise and fall of the genre. His, I remember his career being effectively over when the, the nerd on Beavis and Butthead wore a Winger shirt, I guess, in the public consciousness. It's more when James Hetfield threw a uh, dart at a dartboard that had his, Kip Winger's face on it in the music video for Nothing Else Matters. Uh, uh, a lighthearted clip, for which James Hetfield has since apologized because of the amount of uh, of uh, of of shame and scorn that he knows it has brought down on Kip Winger's head. So Kip had been hanging around, and people. So you start talking about Winger, the 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 the, the Kip apologists need to say. Well, you know, he's actually a very, very good musician and, you know, he's composed classical music and um, you know, Kip Kip is a Kip is a smart guy and uh, and actually, unlike a lot of these lunkheads, really knows music. It doesn't change the fact that his signature hit was 17 and that he was, you know, his his chest hair was a co-star uh, of his face in the music videos.
1: Yeah, winger sucks. Uh <laughs> and being a good musician no you're never coming out of it. Like be a good songwriter. Try doing that. Then, well, you know, being a good musician is a ch- cherry on top. Well, so Ben in
0: 1993, and I love, this was a story. I also remember hearing white lion had kind of a similar story where the label they sent, you know, they, they, they pre-produce some demos and they go, yeah, this is what we're thinking of recording this time around. And the label goes, it's good. We love it guys. It's some of your strongest work yet, but I don't exactly hear a single, and and, and and the band, be it White Lion, be it Winger, is like, oh, well, whoever said that we're a singles act, we're legitimate artists. And you know what? The fact that you said that means we're going to go home and write our most uncompromising stuff yet, which is great. If you're Bob goddamn Dylan, but when you're a pop act and you all of a sudden refuse to play ball with your label to even attempt to write singles in 1993, that is a recipe for disaster. However, according to the Wikipedia, many fans say this is their favorite Winger album, the one that features the single Down Incognito. Is that the Uncle Tom's Cabin one?
1: That's it. <laughs> you got it. And you know what's funny? I always, I don't have this problem anymore, but I always was like, warrant, winger, eh, kind of the same thing. Yeah. And we know that's not the case, but maybe it is because this sounds like warrant. Well, Uncle unless, Tom's cabin.
0: yeah, unless, um, uh, unless Winger wrote it first, which I strongly doubt. I, I, I believe, and I'm not the biggest warrant fan i'm even among hair metal bands i'm really not but i i actually think Janie lane has if anybody in that scene can be argued to have any legitimate songwriting talent um i think Janie lane actually did have a smidge of real of, of real songwriting talent and i'm bed of roses
1: guess. bed of roses on the cherry pie album is mm-hmm. actually a good song i think i saw red is a, is an is a okay. nice
0: is a nice sort of refreshing you know it it it, it fits the genre but it was actually kind of a a decent little a decent little tune now you've just now you've gone too far Mike Tully no I saw saw Red's an okay song I mean you're the guy back in bed of roses so pipe down over there (laughs) Um, let's talk about, so Bullet Boys, I'm going to stop playing the, uh, the original hits. If anybody wants to look it up, Smooth Up In Ya would be the song that you would probably remember from, from the hay. By 1995, Bullet Boys had signed with a major label by the name of Sword Holio and released this song right here.
1: those kids were in it to win it this is wild because the intro to this song mm-hmm. is like almost sounds like metalcore from the 90s like a lot of hardcore punk kind of devolved into metalcore yeah by this this era we're yeah. in 95 now and it's like if you just played that intro and then stopped it before the singing it's like oh what metalcore band is this um i, I, think, I like how i, I, this... I think go, uh, please go ahead Oh, the the album is entitled Acid Monkey and it's on Sword Holio Records. Mm-hmm. Like they were influenced by Cornholio from Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. I no, strange. i strange.
0: I know. You know, I think um Part of the reason, it does sound like those metalcore bands, but I think part of the reason why it does is because the budget was so low, and you know, had, yeah. had they recorded that riff in 89, it wouldn't have sounded so much like that. This is what it sounded like when you were recording on on a shoestring. Um, another song from that same album is entitled Toy. Toy. That's a little six, four time signature for you, just in case you
1: thought the smooth up in you guys were a bunch of pretty boys. Um, my friend, Dan Epstein, who is a writer, really accomplished writer, writes a lot about hard rock music. He told me this story. I told him I was going to do this. And yeah. he said, in 1994, I was at a club and some band, I forget the name, was playing and they seemed like total tryhards wearing flannel. And then halfway through, he realized, oh, that's the singer of the Bullet Boys singing in this band. And that instantaneously made it, you know, funny to be watching this. This is 90. And what we're listening to now is 95. And he goes and and we were trying to figure out, did Bullet Boys break up? This guy started a new band. And then he realized, uh, maybe if I just re- rename this new band Bullet Boys and put out another record, I'm just theorizing here. I don't know the backstory, but. That the yeah. timeline would make sense.
0: No, there was definitely, there was definitely a bit of that. You know, I, 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 I maybe even told you this too. I remember one time my band played at some little club with a few people there, and the and the guy out outside there was the singer Ronnie Sweetheart from the band The Throbs, and I love The Throbs. I think that album is perhaps the great lost hair metal album, The Language of Thieves and Vagabonds. But we we're like, oh my god, your sweetheart. We're really big fans, and I don't think he heard a ton of that in like '94. And then we're like, cool. And he's like, so you guys want to like stick around for the show? And we're like, here's (laughs) the thing. I'm 16 and I know where to buy malt liquor around the corner from here. Um, So, if and if I wasn't sticking around, then I don't know who was. And it was really, really sad that people who had signed major label deals like three years beforehand were, yeah, were out there in the flannel and, 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 and they were reluctantly selling and it, it made it even more sad that nobody was buying. I got four more of these. Are you with me, Ben?
1: Let's hear them, <laughs>
0: right? You you, you, I could see you thought about it for a second, but I'm I'm glad you ultimately came around. Um, it it uh, would would the name Danger Danger have meant anything to you circa 1990
1: 91? No, this is another. This is a hair metal band I learned of well after hair metal was a dis- thing of the distant past, because you got to think. I'm trying to ignore this stuff but I'm also watching MTV at the same time circa '91. Yeah. 90, yeah so a lot of the stuff if they don't play it like if it's not on like trickster level uh rotation because they played that trickster shit so much it's easy that I would have just not thought anything of it but yeah I'm I'm aware with aware of them now certainly trickster you say
0: now they did make an album. I may have to I may have to look into that. They did make an album after the one with uh, Give It to Me Good and because they are from my neck of the Woods in, right. in New Jersey. So Danger Danger actually, if they'd had a ballad, they would have had a hit because they actually found a degree of mainstream success, even with the quote unquote rockers, which was really, really hard to do even at the the height of uh of hair metal. I personally recall personally phoning my local FM Top 40 station, Z100, and thanking the DJ for playing Danger Danger because I was so all about the metal that I just wanted it. Re- I, used, I I I had another friend at the, at Z100 and I literally made him a mixtape of hair metal that I was like, you guys should play all this stuff. People are going to love this. Like just any hair metal, just stop playing the pop crap, play the rock Danger Danger was close enough for me. And, you know, and now I know how radio worked. They were kind of like giving it some test spins at 2 o'clock in the morning to see if anybody was biting on it. But this this song was played at least at 2 a.m. on Z100, which is the biggest top 40 station, or at least it was, in, in America. Here is the halcyon days of Danger Danger. The other thing with Danger Danger, everything was the same word twice. The band was called Danger Danger and the first single was called naughty naughty and then the breakthrough single was called bang bang i don't know why that was their thing but it was uh, that was that was the pattern anyway here's bang bang by danger danger off the album danger danger
1: it's weird because i feel like you don't like that ben well that could almost be like brian adams like there's not doesn't nothing even remotely metal or hard rock about that to me yeah
0: well well danger danger heard your criticism and in 1995 they came back uh with the album dawn this was the grittier more raw stripped down sound of danger danger many fans consider it their best album by the way and it featured this song right here once once their car was operating in the background that was when these bands had gone uh, had had gone full retard it was there was so much of like well we can do that i can just i can i can i can distort my voice and do uh a live director's commentary
1: on the lead vocal yeah there's something in a song we're going to get to where that happens a lot um, i think I, I think i might know which one you're talking about
0: yeah. so i was You're talking to a guy who could have been found on the boardwalk in point pleasant new jersey uh round about uh, summer of 1990 wearing a dangerous toys sportin a woody t-shirt and by the way i'm gonna back dangerous dangerous toys have some very good songs i honestly am not kidding but they are best known for uh probably this song right here even though i don't even think it was a single Kind of like a less sophisticated
1: jackal. You remember the uh, professional wrestler Scary Sherry? She, no. I think she was uh, I think she had a thing with um Macho Man Randy Savage. They were like she was like Macho Man's manager slash girlfriend and then got in this feud with the, the lovely Elizabeth yep. anyway.
2: Scary Sherry talked like this That oh, was really? her
1: character. It's like half oh, these hair metal bands sound like the scary Sherry to me. Like <laughs>
2: This is my singing voice.
1: It's like, really? That's the way you sing, okay, dude? It's, yeah, okay. That's bad. But have you
0: heard Queen of the Nile? It's a beautiful. It's actually a beautiful up-tempo hair. I'm not gonna play it, but take my word for it, or, or, or listen to it. <laughs> um. So actually, the singer, whatever you may think of Jason McMaster's pipes and vocal approach um he was a highly sought after frontman in the hair metal scene he actually had been singing with some other band and dangerous toys poached him and and got their deal in rather short order and he swears that um that when skid row kicked out sebastian they asked him to join but he chose to stick to his guns and uh stick with dangerous toys no right answer there <laughs> obviously yeah. so uh so, so sport no Woody came out, you know, 8990, prime hair metal, and uh by '95 <clears throat> they released an album called The Artist, formerly known as Dangerous Toys. The title and the cover art, a parody of Prince. Inexplicable at the time, no less baffling in the here and now, and it featured their take on Alice in Chains. a cry for help.
1: Yeah, a cry for help over the telephone because <laughs> nothing more 90s yeah than recording your vocals with that I'm singing over a telephone effect which sucks. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, this other than that, this is like it's funny. We're on song number 17. No one else you mentioned, no one's trying to sound like Nirvana, but no one is even trying to sound like Pearl Jam either, who I think are the most commercially successful of all those grunge bands. Mm. But I'm not complaining, actually, because I hate I actually Pearl Jam is tied for first with my least favorite band of all time. The other one being Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, who both made breakthrough albums in 1991. That strange year where everything everything kind of (coughs) changes.
0: Huh. i think pearl jam have a couple tunes
1: you know uh state of love and trust
0: from the singles soundtrack no check the top it out of my head i can't I honestly check it out because it's it's not it's it's um it's it's got a ton of energy it's it's very up-tempo it's like feverish and t- t- i mean i'll um grunge so often stereotypically lingered in Kind of slow and low, uh, uh, like a a, a a fuzzy simmer, and yet very often was added. But it. it's best when it got off its ass and rocked out. And I think <clears throat> I like a couple of you know. I think even flows okay. Um, but uh, state of love and trust to me is 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 easily their best song. Give it a listen. Isn't
1: that a Citizen Dick
0: song though? Uh, you might be right. It might be. It might technically be. No, I mean it's it's. I mean, fuck. I'll just play it. It's it's. Uh, I,
1: mm-hmm. I, it was the joke, right? Isn't Pearl Jam, they play a band called Citizen Dick in the movie singles? <coughs> That's right. And then... So it's... Yeah. Right. You know, did you ever hear this? It's so good,
0: dude. Uh, I actually never saw singles. Yeah, you know, I only watched it recently, like a, a couple years ago. You, you for sure had to be there, but... This... Anyway, that's the verse. You got to hear the chorus. But I I, 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 and I'm believe me, I was, I was not there for for the for for Pearl Jam. But I, you know, I had to recognize they did they did nail it on that one.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna go danger team dangerous toys wow. on that. Okay, Take Pearl Jam versus dangerous toys. The 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 decades-long debate that everyone's <laughs> had
0: it's divided so many families <laughs> yeah um so let's talk about vixen vixen were a band who had been um vixen were like they say about uh, ginger rogers she had to do everything fred did only backwards and in heels everything was harder for vixen because of the the rampant undisguised sexism of the industry, you know, girls can't rock. I mean, sure. Vixen couldn't really write a song either, but still they were there in the beginning as, as you're aware. And as, as, as I am more than aware, they were featured prominently in the, in the, the tit movie classic, maybe the, the ultimate tit movie, um, the, the godfather of eighties tit movies, hard bodies. Um, They were around before most of the hair metal bands got their deals. And, they got signed after most of those bands got their deals, but sooner or later they did. I always, did I tell you this, I always remember, I've always wanted to ask them about this. I I, I um. <clears throat> I remember reading a profile of them one time. It may have even been in Metal Edge, which you informed me just today is, I can't believe it was still around, but Metal Edge is no no longer as of today, right? That's right. As we record this. I remember reading a profile, it was like, you know, a reporter from some metal magazine going on tour with the band for a couple of days and talking about crazy life on the road with this band. And I remember the Vixen one ended with the reporter saying that he was, like, basically sleeping with, like, meet the the member of Vixen meets him at the hotel room door and he slips his tongue in her mouth and she invites him in the room. And as I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Vixen are cool. They put out basically <laughs> other rock dudes. Awesome. And then I remember thinking of that years later and thinking I first of all, if that did happen, um, you had no business printing it. And, 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 and B, I kind of doubt that that actually happened. And yet that that was that was in whether it was circus or rip or metal edge it was in a magazine that I that I purchased at my local my local mini mart so it was not easy I just ask Lita Ford. it was not easy to be a lady
1: in the hair metal world but Vixen yeah uh, mm-hmm. and by the way a scene where men dressed like women yeah I know. so it's like the irony is just it couldn't be more blatant um, I looked yeah. up Vixen. In preparation for this and i don't know if it's wikipedia or discog said that they formed in 1971 which trips me out (laughs) holy what holy well i saw
0: them at a hair metal festival in the last 10 years and they look great for a band even if there's one original member from 1971 they look fabulous Um,
1: based on their ages that's that has to have been the case i mean they're they're they couldn't have had a bunch of eight-year-olds in the band. That's right. Um, That's right. So, and indeed uh, when we play their, their nineties
0: song, as I said earlier, it's not an official Vixen release because I think the founding member who was gone by then was in the process of successfully suing them for the name. Even though I, even though I think everybody but her carried on, she legally retained uh, the, the rights to the name. So in the heyday, I recently learned that their I don't think this was actually their biggest song, but to me, it was their their best song. It was definitely on Headbangers Ball
1: quite a bit, if not written, at least co-written by one Richard Marks. That's right. My my guiltiest of all guilty pleasures is Edge of a Broken Heart Mm -hmm. on the self-titled. I don't know if it's self-titled, but the first Vixen album that came out in 1988. It's fun. Uh, Just 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 go with it.
0: It's fucking sweet, dude. If loving that is so good, I don't want to be right. Yeah. So good. Now I, I know that they made a second album. Uh, You know, all these bands like, uh, you want to talk about like, you know, throwing good money after bad or whatever that phrase is. It's never made any sense to me. All these bands. it had, an album that was their high water mark and then grunge would totally take them out of the game a couple years later but in between those two every one of them i feel like had a follow-up album that the label spent way more money on that had a more expensive video that was already diminishing return so not only did they all go away with grunge they'd also uh put out the bloated follow-up album that didn't have for example a edge of the broken heart probably probably for the second album they're like bullshit we can write our own songs and it turns out no, they couldn't, um, but uh, I did not know that uh, Vixen, um, or some iteration of Vixen, reconvened in 1998 to make an album called Tangerine, which featured this song right here.
2: Well, are you that twisted?
0: am I crazy to say that, you know, if if they got sued successfully over the name, they had to know that there was, they were probably already being threatened with that when they made an attempt to to release that album. I don't think it's crazy to think that they could have been a beginning of the day, not like side stage band at Ozfest with that
1: in 98, if they had not called it Vixen. To me, it sounds like, grunge but we're in 1998 so people now today refer to that stuff as post grunge like creed and nickelback because creed and nickelback were going they were putting out records in at this time yes so it's like those were the peers of vixen now so i don't even know where vixen would play or if this band had a different name would place really stupid cover art by the way uh, tangerine is the name of the album, and it look and the and the tangerine is pierced, and it looks like a belly button piercing, but it's a tangerine. Um, yeah, ridiculous. Uh, hard bodies, 1984. They they sound like Pat Benatar. They don't even sound like a hair metal band, right? Um, do you remember the name the name of the band? They weren't Vixen in the movie. They were no, I I don't I, I know it was on
0: it was on the 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 bass drum, but no, I don't recall diaper rash diaper rash that's right that's absolutely right hell yeah right Di- even vixen who didn't have a record deal performed under an assumed name in hard bodies which tells you everything you need to know about about hard bodies so i want to do one more and I, I appreciate you sticking out this extra long episode with me um i'm gonna guess that you uh until i sent the track list your way were unfamiliar with shotgun messiah that is correct. Okay, so Shotgun Messiah is. I feel no guilt over anything, but if I felt guilt over any of the music that I like, um, Shotgun Messiah would be at the top of my list of guilty pleasures. <clears throat> Their guitar player is actually one of the great hair metal shredders, but you know you, that that doesn't do you a whole lot outside of the guitar solos. Um, Shotgun Messiah were out of Sweden or some country that's Sweden esque. And these guys were, um, had zero scruples about following trends. So when they showed up, glam metal was the thing. So they release a glam metal album. And by the second one, it's not grunge, but they've kicked out the super glam singer and they, they, the, the hair isn't up anymore. It's down. And they've got, you know, they're, they're, they're still now, now they have jeans instead of leather pants and they're wearing the flannels open. So you can see their, their torso, but the sleeves are, are taken off. And uh, here's, here's uh, this was America's introduction to Shotgun Messiah, my introduction. I, I clearly remember at the zenith of Headbangers Ball, it was not only Saturday night, it also had 30 minutes on weekdays. And I recall being in my friend's den, seeing the music video for this classic right here. So that's who we're that's that's who we're talking about here. They did kick out the singer thank goodness uh shortly after that. Um but they made I'm going to go ahead and call this uh my my secret success of the the post grunge era for for hair metal bands. Um they released an album which is utterly out of print i was able to track it down on youtube does this do nothing for you shotgun messiah and uh the title track to violent new breed Come on. Not everybody went grunge. Some people ripped off Nine Inch Nails instead.
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing about this band, who is from Sweden, Mm. Tim Skold from this band went on to play in KMFDM and Marilyn Manson. So even if this band wasn't successful, there was a success story out of out of this uh, band. There's two guys. And, yeah. There's two guys from hair metal that I'm still holding out. Hope that one day
0: I will run into and get to shake their hand. And because t- I don't think these guys meet a lot of guys like me who aren't like criminally deranged who, who can actually talk credibly about their music in insane depth. And, and honestly say, I, I, I love your music and still listen to it. And uh Tim, Tim Skold is, is one of those two. And yeah, I, I, I wicked him recently. Cause this is how I choose to spend my life. And um. When um, uh, my kids got really obsessed with the Marilyn Manson version of the uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas song, This Is Halloween, and Scold, I guess, felt very, very butthurt about that because he said that Marilyn was uh, not in a good way and was just off getting hammered and that basically... Marilyn charged Tim with making the musical track. And then Marilyn just sort of rolled in and went, This is Halloween. And, and, and didn't give Tim his due credit. And it actually is a very terrific Marilyn Manson cover of the Danny Elfman song. And Tim Skull swears that he did the whole thing. So take that for what it's worth.
1: Well, it's a cover. So he didn't write the song. You're just saying he turned it into a Marilyn Manson the... song. It's, right.
0: it's, if you listen to it, it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty intense little, there's lots of stuff going on. Yeah, like mm. literally like how do you do the math? How okay, that little thing. How do you Marilyn Manson, that Danny Elfman thing? How do you Marilyn Manson that Danny Elfman thing? And it mm. really is this perfect Marilyn Marilyn Mansonization of the Danny Elfman song, which is yes, a very, a very uh a discreet skill <laughs> to to yeah. be sure. But he did but he did knock it out of the park. yeah, Tim Skold, Tim Skold's uh probably still living here
1: and uh and and has made a real go of it. Hats off to Tim Scold of the band Shotgun Messiah, formerly Kingpin. That's right. That's exactly
0: right. Yeah. I think when they got here, they found out that there had already been a U.S. band called called Kingpin. Um, well we have uh I, I mean okay I, I won't I won't look up trickster I think I think I think we've made our point here um we've come to the end of the rainbow and I thank you Ben for uh inspiring this episode and for doing your homework and for joining me and for and for staying here for the duration and I will remind everybody that uh you have written a book called going off the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' records and uh yeah thank you for being here
1: Thanks for having me. I, I I hate to say this. There's no mention of hair metal that I can remember in my book about hip hop music. No. Oh, my um, God, no.
0: No. But
1: there is a great book about hair metal entitled Nothing But A Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion by Tom Bourgeois and Richard Beanstock. You interviewed them yes. on this very podcast. Mm-hmm. There is a quote from there. In that book, J.J. French of Twisted Sister says, quote, I think a lot of hair metal bands would like to think there was a conspiracy against them. The labels must be sitting in a room and going, We don't want this kind of music anymore. I say, since when is capitalism and fucking people over to make money a conspiracy? Unquote.
0: Yeah. That, that says it right there. That about that about sums it up. And I mean, you know, to be fair, the grunge bands, maybe not quite as dramatically, but the, the grunge bands got theirs a couple years later. This is um the vicious cynical cyclical nature of uh marketing music to children pretty much yeah all right thank you ben thanks